Welcome to Well-Designed Lives with Brad Wiesner, our weekly podcast that brings you interesting people and deep conversations about all things beauty and about how others curate a well-designed life. Welcome again, fellow sophisticates. Today we have one of the most intimate and sensitive guests I can recall so far. I found myself becoming more impressed and drawn to him, and I think you'll come to love Doug Smith. Honestly, a bigger life I cannot imagine. And our episode today is just one of two. It's that big of a story. The first half of Doug's life builds and builds to the man he would become. And all the fascinating episodes and trials and tribulations, joys and growth are just so relatable to all of us. I know you'll agree. And as usual, As we do here on Well-Designed Lives, we seem to come across so many commonalities and shared experiences and paradigms, and with Doug, we have no exception. I love that we all have so much in common when we sit down and talk. I hope that you enjoy these two episodes as much as I have. I give you Doug Smith. Welcome, I guess, right? What do you think? <laughs> okay. So welcome, Doug. Um, this is Doug Smith, everybody. And we're so pleased to have Doug here today. Um, he's got a, a big history, a big life, and I think a lot of great things to share with us. So how are you doing today, Doug? Good. Uh, I'm in Florida. Weather's nice. Uh, and uh, I got to go to the ocean this morning and feeling pretty good. So I learned something about you. Um, you. This can't be true, right? You don't really get up at 4.30 every morning and exercise? Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> Jeez, Louise, how do you do that? Is that just like your body naturally uh, wakes up? I, I naturally wake up and then I do the exercise uh, because uh, it's too early for me to realize what I'm doing. And so I can uh, get away with it. And then afterwards, I feel pretty good for the day. Ignorance is bliss. So, uh, wow. So you go to bed at 6 p.m. I don't know. That's Uh, about uh, 8 or 8.30. Yes. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm definitely a night owl. I I, I can be up till one in the morning. No problem. uh, I'd have problems doing that. Isn't that funny? So, okay. So uh, you live in Florida. You have a big background. Everybody who read the show notes will know uh, very much. Your work is too big and too complex to put on our show notes. So we're taking the, the most salient parts, you know, trying to share those. You, um, is, uh, you grew up in different places, right? I think you moved around a lot as a young child. I, yes. Uh, I think I lived in 15 different, um, apartments before I was in first grade. So, uh, we moved around. My dad was in the Navy And uh, my mom uh, wanted to be in the closest port to wherever he was, even though he was thousands of miles away. So we went up and down the east and the west coast in various uh, places Mm -hmm. so that my mom could be the closest to my dad she could be. Very cool. That's a lot. That's a lot of movies. Yes. And then I, I got it into my blood, too, that my dad... Once he got out of the Navy, but he was both in World War II and the Korean War. 
And then he started to work for Caterpillar Tractors, which uh, moved him around quite a bit. In fact, I had not lived any place longer than four years until uh, I was in my uh, late 50s. So uh, I got that in my blood, uh, moving many places. Uh, of, of the very many things that you and I have in common, that is one of them. Uh, my mother calculated it once that uh, our family moved 22 times, um, I think, while she was married to my dad. I think that's maybe exaggerated, but we moved a lot um, before my age of 12. And even after that, we moved a few more times. And, um, and then in my young adulthood, I just moved a lot and it, it feels like it's in your blood. I, I make the joke, you know, why clean? Just move, you know? Okay. Yes. I, I found advantages and disadvantages to it, uh, especially when I was younger Yeah. that, uh, I, I got used to the fact that I shouldn't make friends because then I'd have to say goodbye to them. So I, I didn't really get too close to people as I was growing up. But then the, the positive side was that uh, I could always literally start my life over again when I moved someplace. I could put behind me all the mistakes I might have made in the previous Isn't that, uh, that's amazing. Yeah. So, so true. So true. Mine had a different color to it. So mine was that every time we moved a new school, or, that I had the opportunity to meet new friends and that I could, you know, enlarge my oh, collection yes. of friends Okay. I found that kind of, um, well, I learned how to be charming and you have to learn how to either make friends or in your case, just not, you know, just insulate yourself. But also, uh, you know, the second part that you said, the opportunity to reinvent yourself. And yes. boy, I did that. Um, and I, I worry these days, and, and I worked very hard not to do this, but that I, I worry how much of a chameleon am I and who is the true me and Mm-hmm. all that mm-hmm. we could jump off on this point right here and probably talk for a full hour about the whys the wherefores and how does that manifest but let's keep introducing you so folks know who you are so you moved around a lot uh, your dad was in the military and then I guess part of it you know I want to talk about football in high school but also I want to talk about sort of the the Episcopal faith in your family I'm Episcopalian yes. also so uh, I guess I'm curious first. So how much Episcopal church did you have growing up? How much was it part of your family? Um, I'll share mine in a moment. It was a real strong background for my mother. And uh, we went as a family, uh, we went to church every Sunday. And then also probably uh, one weekday then as well, even when I was young. And uh, I enjoyed doing that, and I, I'm not too sure why I enjoyed it, but I just enjoyed going, and it was a break for me, uh, a time in which I could reflect uh, and just watch uh, what was going on around me. And I enjoyed the, the drama of the liturgy, and I enjoyed the fact that I remember when I was in fifth and sixth grade, we were living in uh, Mountain View, California, and the church was recently built. And the uh, outside the church, there was this big mound of uh, dirt that uh, uh, me and the other kids my age would play in 
uh, immediately after church. And so we would go to church all dressed up and come home just a, a dirty mess. But uh, sure, sure. It, it was fun. It was fun. Was your family kind of a right one or a right two? Um, I, I would guess um, that my mom was more of a right two. Uh, but I was, I appreciated right one. I appreciated uh, more of the, the these, the thous, the King James English. And I, I liked, uh, I felt more of a mystical presence uh, in that right one and more of a social presence in that right two. I'm going to interject here. Um, I, I agree completely. And I'm going to say something, and we'll circle right back to that. And just, I forgot to mention at the very beginning, probably a disclaimer, we should say, um, our producer of the podcast, Conley Potter, um, is um, a, a very dear friend of mine as well. And Doug is Conley's stepfather. So I was introduced to Doug through Conley. Wanted to put that out there. The other piece is for the Episcopal faith. Or I'm sure everybody knows this, but just in case, um, and I'll, I'll butcher this terribly, but the, but the simplest, quickest way I like to just almost joke about it is back in the day in England, you know, everybody was Catholic, and it was king, which king was it, Henry the Eighth? Henry the Eighth. Henry the Eighth. And he wanted to get divorced and get married again. And the Pope over in Italy said, dude, you can't do, th- okay, this is too much, and I don't care if you're king or whatever, but I will not sanction this. So King Henry got all upset and said, then I'll just form my own church. So he told everybody to go out and make church. And they're like, how do we do? I don't know. So they captured all these Catholic monasteries over there in England and um, made church. And, well, I guess you have the crucifix. I guess we have incense. I guess we... So they did everything like a Catholic church. But the important part is that the thinking became very different. And at some point when Queen Elizabeth got involved, was it Queen Elizabeth the first... Uh, I think that one will have to we'll go research. to the internet to figure that out. We'll have, yeah. Someday I want to have somebody who's a fact checker at the end. That would be cool. Okay. To say. <laughs> Brad, you lied about that. But anyway, and so um, really, really uh, implored the British and English folks to really get into this religion. And so the thinking of the Church of England became very much a thinking man's church and with reason and thought. Um, you know, and, and the joke, and this is really callous, this is really sort of superfluous, but I, I'll say it anyway. It, it's sort of joking, sort of tongue-in-cheek, but you know the Catholics, they have the Pope, right? And the Pope to them is kind of kind of God on earth, and, and the rules come down, you know, from the Vatican, and these are the rules, you guys, and you got to live by these rules, and if you break any of these rules, you're going to hell, and we know this, we know this. The Episcopalians are kind of like, hmm, we don't have a pope. We don't do it. Actually, our stuff kind of comes kind of bottom up more than, I mean, we have bishops. They keep it all organized, really. See, the Episcopalians sort of say, we think these are the rules. We think, I mean, you know, we weren't there, so, but they are good rules to live by. We should really try to, now, if you break these rules, we don't know exactly what will happen, but you, they're just really good rules. You should, let's have a cocktail, <laughs> and that's kind of my armchair, but I know that there's some real serious differences in terms of the sacraments and, and uh, you know, when, when we take communion in the Episcopal Church, the bread and the wine, uh, when they become the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, um, 
it's a little different in our church and Catholic, and that's all we need to really say. So anyway, Episcopal Church came over here, and they said, we're so angry at England, we're new settlers, we're not calling it Church of England, we'll make it, uh, I don't know, Episcopal, that sounds good. And from there, we found all of our Episcopal churches here in America, styled after the Church of England, which had the rosy and profuse and beautiful liturgical language as Doug referred to, write one in our prayer book, this older style. And in America, somewhere in the 30s and 40s, like, we got to lighten this up, you know. And they did write two, which is just a cleaner, lighter version of all of it, where instead of thee and thou, it's just us and them. You know? But to Doug's point, and now we've circled back on this, I agree completely that write one, there's such a beauty in it. And, and, I think bigger meaning, I think that you can really get quite a lot more uh, when it is the liturgical order of service contained in, in Rite 1 that some of those words have bigger meaning. One of the things was veils of tears, you know, V-A-L-E-S, veils of tears. And, and uh, okay, what he cried, right? So in Rite 2, they might say, yeah, he cried. Um, veils of tears sounds more profuse. It sounds more evocative. There's a more of emotion. And there are people who still prefer right two. It's just lighter and fresher and more approachable. So, sorry, I I went on such a tangent there. But back to back okay. to back to your court. Um, we'll talk about Episcopal faith, I think, in in a moment um, because it's going to come up big in a minute. But so while you were growing up Episcopalian and you were playing football in high school, right? Yes, yes, I was. Uh, all of me was into football. In fact, I felt that was going to be my future beyond high school. And so uh, I felt that uh, the academics in high school were just something I had to put up with in order to get out of high school. And uh, I was a very poor student. Uh, My grade point average was 1.5, kind of a D plus I like to emphasize the plus, but it was a midway between a D and an F. But um, I, I hear you. Mm-hmm. So football was going to be, you know, a big ticket, and and a yes. big, a, it was a big passion of yours when you were playing football. Um, it was in high school, so varsity, right? Yes, um, and I was quite successful at that. Um, I was being uh, looked at and possibly recruited by. Uh, several major schools. In fact, in one of my games, uh, I can mention a couple of famous football players that were in college when I was in high school that they came down to watch me. One was Dick Butkus. The other one was Gail Gail Sayers. Sayers. Oh, wow. Uh, Okay. I know those names. Okay. So I was being observed and everybody was thinking, oh, Doug Smith will be uh, maybe not in the caliber of those two gentlemen, but uh, up there. Uh, but then the last play of the last game of my senior year, uh, I dislocated my shoulder so severely that uh, I actually, if, if somebody were to run their hand over my right shoulder, they'd notice two bumps rather than one because that dislocation. And so football was out. Oh, and really? then I had then I had to figure out, oh, what do you do if you can't play football? So I was, oh, uh, wow. I became part of a special program 
that uh, a teacher from uh, the University of Minnesota set up in which he had gotten a grant from a foundation in which he claimed he could take 26 young men, all of whom were not going to get into college, and over a summer, he'd be able to somehow transform those young men. And I was part of the ones that, uh, part of the group that was chosen. And there, each one of us had shown some promise somewhere. And in that group, uh, a third of the young men chosen were, um, had spent most of their lives in uh, detention homes or reform school. And although they were at the top of their class in reform school, that wasn't going to get them into college. Another third was a group of Native American young men who had uh, been taught according to the Native American way. And in that particular educational system, there were not any grades or transcripts. And these young men had shown some promise there, but weren't going to get into college without a transcript. And then the third that I was in was a group who had uh, shown some promise on the athletic field, but never in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bob Blanchard, through that summer, was able to transform all of us. Every single one of those young men ended up getting into college at the end of that summer. He was just a phenomenal teacher. Phenomenal. And would you agree? I, I have a sense. I have no idea, but I'm going to guess. You, you were very bright. You are a very smart man. You're very intelligent. You're bright. I mean, you were that way in high school. You just didn't apply yourself. And did Bob see that in you? And that's why you were in the third group? I, I think um, Bob saw that in uh, everybody in that classroom. He, uh, he, he had this unconditional positive regard for everybody in that classroom, no matter what our background Mm -hmm. uh, he said, you know, all of you, uh, at the end of the summer, you're going to do it. You're going to make it into college. Uh, he, he did it. <laughs> he was, uh, and he had come from a similar background, uh, in which he had done very poorly academically in high school, but he changed himself and taught all of us how to change ourselves. So uh, another, you know, uh, another of the many things that you and I have in common in high school, I was the same way, although I wasn't particularly into sports and I wasn't particularly into theater, I wasn't particularly into anything, I was in everything a little bit. And uh, well, I had fun, but I didn't apply myself and my grades were not far off of yours. Going to college was just de facto. I mean, in my family, you're going to be going yes. to college. So, you know, I just thought I had an easy in with Indiana University and there's a whole story with that, but I did really well on my SATs. And, and with that, I just felt, or I, I knew in my mind, that it was a, a fait accompli. I'm applying to India. My parents went there, you know, and I didn't get accepted to IU. And uh, there's a big story around that. I tell it on another podcast, but we had a guidance counselor in my high school write a note on my application that they recommend that I not be accepted. To, and it was very personal. It was very, caused a huge scene. But anyway, so I totally get the idea of, Maybe we don't apply ourselves. The grades aren't so good. People, people could see it. So uh, you went to school, and a part I'm curious about where did where did you go to school? I did uh, undergraduate at Luther College, uh, which is in Northeast uh, Iowa, 
but that's where the program was that this Bob Blanchard was teaching was there. And but before that summer, my dad took me around trying to get me into college. And the only college, and we went all around the country, the only college I could get into, and it, I don't even think it's in existence anymore, uh, it was called Natchitoches State Teachers College. And that was the only place that I could be admitted before this program. But uh, after the program, I got to Luther and then um, got into academia and eventually had three master's degrees after Luther mm -hmm. College. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I'm just curious, um, with your Episcopal faith and going to church, when you moved away from home and now, now you're in college and moving through, it sounds like this uh, Bob Blanchard must have been pretty influential in your life. Yes. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yes. During that time, did you still say, but I go to church on Sundays? Uh, I went, uh, I was at Luther College. They had daily chapel there. Uh, it was Lutheran, uh, but Lutheran. it was it was not required uh, to go to chapel. But uh, so many people went that it was obvious if you didn't go. Uh, mm -hmm. So so I went. Yes, peer pressure. Yeah. So um, okay. So anyway, I'm just curious because I didn't when I was in college. I, we just didn't. I didn't. I don't know. I was having fun. I just didn't. So um, church came back to me a little later in life. But anyway, so, so you love school and three master's degrees. Yes. From a guy that had a 1.6 grade. Right, yeah. Yeah, amazing. I, I love it. I just love that. And the power of um, a young person's resiliency and the power to, to see beyond and make it, and just make it. It's great. It, it was like a new football field. Uh -huh. And I needed to win. I needed to win. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And so your studies in general, because I wanted to get into some topics. And in, in, so while you were in school, it sounds to me, and, and please help me with this, but I mean, you, you, were, you were studying and publishing and, and presenting. And, and the more you went through school, the more you became more of an author and a consultant. And Yes. Um, after, after Luther College, I went directly to seminary and uh, then went into the ministry, the priesthood. And then I, I had a, a mental breakdown while in the priesthood, was even institutionalized for a while and came out of that. And once you're trained in the ministry, uh, there's not many other occupations you're qualified to do. Sure. Uh, and right there, I mean, there was like three or four things you mentioned. That's, that's a big story. Um, let's go and talk about, first of all, something I'm interested in, you know, the seminary, uh, going into priesthood, how all that works. You were, you were in the seminary in Alexandria, Virginia. Yes. Do you know the boys? Well, it was the boys school, St. Stephen's. Yes. I, <laughs> I almost went there. Oh, and okay. I, even yes. though I didn't, I was very excited that I may go to this Episcopal boys school and I have fond memories of an alma mater that I never even attended. But anyway, I went to T.C. Williams High School. There. Okay. So anyway, in seminary, I mean, I think the one in Alexandria, isn't that, it's pretty serious. It's a big, serious, is it the best seminary or the largest or? It's, um, it, people can label those seminaries different ways. The, the time that I went to seminary at that time, 
there were actually 11 Episcopal seminaries in the country. And uh, Virginia was probably, I think, the biggest. It was on the continuum in the Episcopal Church. You've got this continuum of low church to high church. Oh, don't get me started on that. Okay. But Virginia was at the low end of the continuum. But I came from a diocese that was at the high end of the continuum. Mm -hmm. But uh, Virginia was, uh, yes, uh, closer to a Lutheran church than a Catholic church. And Episcopalians try to straddle between the two. But so I went to Virginia, but then I had to go back to a diocese that was uh, very Catholic, very um, high church. Which was where? Uh, it was the Diocese of Quincy, which is in Illinois. Okay. But I was at that time the only priest who had not only uh, gone to a low church seminary, I was the only priest in the diocese that hadn't gone to the highest of the 11, uh, which was a seminary called Neshota House. And there it was so close to the Catholic Church that. You couldn't wear street clothes to go to class. You had to wear cassocks. And, but that's the diocese I went back to, and they had to retrain me in liturgy so that I could function in that high church diocese. I, I, compl- yeah. I completely understand that. Yeah. yeah. I, I grew up mostly in the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. Oh, yes. And okay. Although my mother would take us to many different churches, I think I want to be kind and say my mother did it to expose us to be sure that we saw. I think, quite frankly, it was more about beautiful architecture, you know, meeting new people. We always got dressed up for church, and it was always it was always an occasion to go to, um, in Washington, D.C., the Greek Orthodox Church, St. Sophia's, you know, on Mother's Day, mm, commun- yes. communion was actually puffy yeast rolls. That was, we went there, right? But then we went over to this Presbyterian church because of these stained glass windows. And it was always a tour of the things. And I don't know how much it was really about the provenance of the liturgy that we we're going to experience. But uh, sitting in the National Cathedral, very often, um, I think it was my stepfather who you remind me of. Uh, he was able to manifest uh, our seating up in the choir stall section, which in any day and time is really pretty cool to do that. Most people don't get yes. to do I had no idea. I thought this is where we're going to sit. But it was also very warm up there because the whole back end of the cathedral hadn't been finished yet. And in January, it was freezing. So anyway... But uh, so, uh, you know, just sort of a cathedral, now that I look back on it, it was so global, so big. I, I don't know that I'm, I, I certainly didn't understand any difference between right one, right two, or some of the liturgical things that were going on during service. And it wasn't until we went to a small church. Uh, by now, my parents had divorced. My, my mom and stepdad lived over near Virginia and um, on the eastern shore of Maryland, and there was a very small town called Horsey, Virginia, and there was a little tiny white Episcopal church, but it was built in the 1700s, and it couldn't be more simple, and yet it was was so elegant and so well done that it, but it was so simple, and 
I remember Father Henry, the altar. I remember these linens and the vestments and things that were so beautiful. There weren't a lot. It was a small church. It was a small country church, (laughs) but it was so elegant. And that's where I started to really invest in the service, the meaning, the Nicene Creed, and more about what it all meant. And so um, I'm, I'm back with you now on you know, going, going through that whole process and, and which seminary. Um, I don't love the term high church and low church. I think high church is, in fact, low church. I think high church is what we oh. did in the Church of England. I, mm-hmm. I, think, I think a lot about all that. And um, I think those terms high church and low church are meant to uh, either impress or intimidate. And I think that high church was designed to enhance our experience in worship. You can say incense and sanctus bells and all that stuff is fancy, high church. and it, Really? Because, you know, our choir rehearsed three times a week. They were a professional paid choir and they at my church in Baltimore just for Sunday service. And it was exquisite. And, and I think to be uplifted that way and to, and to have that deeper meaning. Uh, we can go someplace else and have a floating altar and do right too. And, you know, we'll get through it. That's fine. Sunday, let's go to brunch. If that works for you, that's fine. Um, some of us really, really find uh, a, a deep meaning and impact when I find a certain reverence. I used to be a sacristan at our very fancy church. So okay. anyway, sorry, I, I digressed a lot on that. Uh, so there you are in seminary, but you went to a, you had to kind of get retrained on, you know, do we bow at sanct or do we cross yes. at sanct yes. and things like that. So, um, and then what happened after that? Uh, I was uh, in a, went to several different congregations. Initially, I did some chaplaincy work uh, at a small college in Illinois. And then I had, uh, was an assistant in a parish in Ohio and got involved in doing, uh, when you're young and in the ministry, you're given assignments as doing the youth ministry. So I organized a lot of the youth ministry throughout Ohio and got pretty well known for that. And so I got one day, I got a call from a church in Phoenix and they wanted to have a a youth minister there. They had a huge staff. Uh, There were six clergy there and uh, they wanted me to come as the youth minister to that church. And I, when I received that telephone call from them, I had already accepted, but had not started a position uh, in which I was asked to be the chaplain at uh, Kent State University. Wow. But then the uh, rector of the church in Phoenix said, well, Doug, if you just come out for a week to Phoenix uh, and just meet with me for a day, Uh, I'll pay for everything for you and your wife to come out and spend that time if you'll just listen to me for a day. And I said, okay, it's your dollar. Uh, I'll do that. And the first church that I had in my own mission church, the total budget of that mission church, including my salary, was less than the line item to trim the palm trees at this church in Phoenix. So it was um, a lot of famous people belong there. Barry Goldwater was a member. Several uh, other uh, people that had homes in Phoenix, their sure. vacation homes. Barry, and, Barry Goldwater, very big, important Republican politician back in the yes. day. He was huge, yes. 
Yes, and uh, Richard Kleinitz, who used to be Secretary of State, and some uh, very wealthy people there. In fact, there was one member of the congregation, I'm forgetting his name, but he had the, had the largest shipping fleet of anybody in the U.S., and he was living in Phoenix, which didn't make much sense, but I went to his home once, and he had a whole wall that was probably, oh, a good 18, 20 feet across that was a a map that was moving that had all of his ships and where they were. And so a lot of wealthy, important people there. And in the ministry, you're, you're put on this pedestal to begin with just and, by being a priest. And Doug, were you the rector of the church? No. I, I was uh, the number two person Got there. It. Mm-hmm. And But then I was probably the most visible to the congregation. I was congregation. just going to, I was going to explain to everybody at a church this big. So Phoenix was blowing up during this time, uh, partly advent of popular air conditioning, uh, moving out West. Um, this whole way of living Phoenix embodied was blowing up, growing very quick as Doug's church says, he's a very big church. And in a church that large, the rector, the main priest can often be so busy as the figurehead, administratively, you know, managing the number two support priest is really the one we can all touch and and probably offers more direct pastoral care and, and, and character. So that was you. We're yes. You. Okay. And and then there were there was also one of the assistants was the former bishop of Arizona uh, was one of the assistants. So it, it was a really big talented staff and. What, what happened there that I was on this pedestal just by being a priest and then being in this congregation and being able to preach to this group and have in the congregation people like Barry Goldwater and all these lawyers and all these uh, important people. And uh, it really can be a head trip on uh, a minister to be able to speak to this group and nobody can... Uh, Nobody can ask questions. Nobody can debate what you're saying. And uh, that self-importance got to me. Absolutely. And yep. I, you also have all of these women looking up to you, admiring you uh, in this highly rehearsed hour where they can easily conclude, my, you're uh, a better person, kinder than the guy that I've got to live with 24 seven. Yep. Uh, so that got to me and I, I started having an affair and uh, there were two Doug Smiths, the one that I was presenting publicly. Mm. Uh, and then there's this other person who was having this affair on the side. And uh, those two Doug Smiths got further and further apart. And I began to manifest some behavior that was uh, inexplainable. The, I would be talking to somebody and I'd all of a sudden just get this blank stare. I would be doing a worship service and I would just start sweating. Long story short, I ended up getting institutionalized in a mental hospital, uh, a very serious place where half the people on the ward were getting shock treatments. I was on Thorazine. And um, that's pretty serious. Yes. And I was there uh, because of my position. I was put there and nobody knew I was there. 
uh, if somebody called up and asked, is Doug Smith in this hospital, the person that answered the phone would have to say, there's no Doug Smith here. And that was even true of my parents. My parents had no idea where I was at. Really? I, well, is this because the church wanted that? The church, what they were afraid of, what the bishop was afraid of, and it had happened in previous congregations, that whenever you have a member of the staff that's highly visible, have some kind of inappropriate behavior or breakdown, mm-hmm. that that can result oftentimes in the congregation splitting. Yes. In which, uh, and so the bishop didn't want that to happen. And so he wanted, mm-hmm. uh, initially he was thinking, Doug, would just cover for you, get your act together. And, you know, after a certain length of time, we'll be able to get you back in and we'll just create some story to account for mm-hmm. the time you were absent. But I was too messed up. Uh, so I eventually had to, I was told by my bishop to sign a document called the renunciation of the priesthood. Oh, Lord. Okay. Wow. And, uh, that didn't help in my mental well-being <laughs> to add to what was already going on with me. Um, so that I just felt that I just felt that in my gut. I I don't know. I mean, well, how little I know you, but that would that would have yeah, been a very big deal. It was not only that the renunciation of the priesthood, but then also my bishop said, um, uh, "Doug, you cannot contact any of the parishioners," yeah. and that was my total community that was my my life and my vocation was taken away from me on one day and i'm on thorazine to boot so i can uh, relate to a lot of that we'll talk about it later but i i'm I'm with you because i had something similar in my life okay yep yeah and you you've got to start from scratch uh and uh, i could say a, a a grace at table or a credit prayer at somebody's bedside, but what do I do now, especially with not having anybody I could turn to for recommendations or anything. So I, I had to start my life anew. Yeah. Yeah. Which, if it were me, I had a lot of practice when I was young, moving around so much, new schools, I could yes. reinvent myself. And because you had that background, it wasn't Oh, I totally get this, Doug. So it wasn't like it was a unfamiliar or an unattainable thing to sort of start at ground zero, reinvent. But this time it was different because it was your investment, your whole, I don't know, for some reason, I'm really ecclesiastical life. As, as, men, as men, we always feel like our vocation is who we are. And yet there yes. was this double life that, of the, the other Doug, you know just the, the complexity of all of it, that there was one thing that was safe and secure. It was your relationship with you know, God and the church and your priesthood was taken away. And yes, um, I had something similar, something as important happen to me like that. So yeah, starting over. So, okay. And then you were in this institution. Holy crap. Yes. Okay. <laughs> On Thorazine. But, um, so, and, and your parents couldn't contact, did, they didn't know where I was. Uh, they flew down to Phoenix and tried to find out what had happened. And they did, in fact, go around to interviewing police. They went to hospitals and the like. And I just, they were at the hospital where I was at and the particular ward that I was in. There was this 
there was bars on the windows and there was this uh, receptionist into the ward and there was this uh, glass with those crossed wires on it. Uh, did you glass ever, that you could, Did you ever break. see the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Yes, it was like This that. is what it, it sounds was, like. Oh my it God. It was very much like that. And um, I saw my parents, their backs of my parents who had just been turned away from the receptionist who said, no, he's not here. I saw their backs walking away and I picked up an ashtray, a glass ashtray and threw it against that glass wall. And it caused my parents to turn around and see me through that window. Get out. And they knew then that I was there. And so we were able to um, (laughs) read each other's lips through this window. They eventually were very influential in getting me out of that place and wow uh, wow, wow. Yeah, this sounds like a movie i mean this sounds like yeah it was very very traumatic but then i was able to of all things i had my first church was a mission church and they couldn't support me full time so i sold um life insurance and mutual funds on the side. And that was my only other skill. And I went around to several brokerage firms in Phoenix and said, you know, I've studied some little bit about investments, but I would be willing to work for you just for commissions. And I know I can talk to wealthy people because I've got this background. Yes, I was in a mental hospital. But I used to be able to talk to all of these people and I could name their names. I can't contact them, but these are the people uh, I communicated with. And you can look that up. And uh, so this one fellow who is a very new uh, brokerage manager hired me. And uh, that's how I began to start all over again, was making telephone calls, trying to get people to invest money uh, and uh, began to start over my life okay i don't know what to say oh my gosh well, i'm a little well, speechless for, fortunately uh, in that business and and being a stockbroker it sometimes helps to be a little crazy so uh to think outside the box so i was good at doing that made enough money that i could uh go back to school and train in initially in uh, uh counseling uh, human development counseling. Well, so I guess, um, I'm trying to piece together. I think I, I think I can, in my mind's eye, uh, when you, when your parents helped get you out of the institution and there must've been some buffer time, wake up, you know, you're back in society there in Phoenix and you reach out to these brokerage firms and you're doing that. Um, you, you had mentioned, and if you, however much you're comfortable to talk is fine, whatever, but you, you had been married when the the priest at the church, there was an affair, but now you're, boy, an institution, are you still married at Um, this this point? I I was, uh, divorce proceedings had started while I was in the hospital. Yeah. Um, and, um, there were, people were scared of me. My wife was scared of me. Um. Because may I ask what time, what years were this? Was in 1985. Okay, still, still at a time where mental health just was not. And and for anybody who has not seen the movie, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, 
I recommend it because it was it was like that. We had a hospital in Washington D.C., St. Elizabeth's Hospital, and it was very much yes. the bars and everything you're describing. I'm seeing it. Pretty scary. Yes, it was half uh, half the people on my ward were receiving shock treatments, and coincidentally, in quotes, uh, those people that were receiving the shock treatments were either uh, Mexican American or Native American. Um, all the rest of us were on pills. So your wife, for good or for bad, were understandably uh, divorces, right? And did you have children? Uh, Yes, uh, two children at the time. Uh Yeah. So, um, wow. Okay, I'm just trying to keep this on track. Then, so these brokerage firms, you're 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 just trying to find your feet, and you're doing this this insurance and brokerage. But I think you're. Your inner your inner compass uh, was drawing you back to a spiritual philosophical. Yes. Okay. Yes, and so uh, I was able to make enough money to go to school full time for two years. Uh, uh, you can make money real quickly in the brokerage business, and I did that and went back to school. And because I had had while in the priesthood. Uh, I had had several very moving and mystical experiences with people while they were dying. Uh, And also the fact that uh, by that time I had had lost a daughter uh, and also had uh, two children, uh, the oldest of which my daughter Marin was born with a, uh, a disease that would be terminal. Uh, So I was, um, I felt a calling to do ministry to the dying and wanted to train to go into hospice. And that's what I structured my counseling degree around doing was working with the dying. Okay. And also I had a therapist who said that that was a perfect type of job for me to do because he said, Doug, you've actually experienced your own death. I was just going to say it. I was, you know what? I didn't know if I would open up that even that window that way, but I was thinking the exact same thing. You already had a death. And I, I kind of, I kind of relate to that. I I had something very similar happen. So it's like you died. Right. Might as well, might as well have been. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, he, this, this therapist, uh, I, I said to him, you know, I, I, I need to find something to do that's fulfilling for me. And uh, he had me write a resume in which he had me put the very first sentence of the resume. He said, you need to have this as your first sentence, that you're an ex-priest that's just gotten out of a mental hospital. And I said, I'm not going to be able to get a job like that. And he said, Doug, you'll be surprised. I want you to, yeah, I want you to look at this and look at this real closely. you You've just lost everything, Doug. I want you to go work with people that are also losing everything. Doug, that's your gift. Go sell it. Yeah. I I was told the very same. Wow. <laughs> you tattoo it on your forehead. Yeah. <laughs> and and you basically come to the table saying, I I have nothing more to Yes. Great. <laughs> and I, I sit in front of you, nothing more I can possibly lose. All I have is my integrity, 
my morals, my honesty, my love. But this is this is about as naked as I get. And you've got the good stuff. You've got the good stuff. Yeah. Let go of all of those roles and all of those games and the shame. Of, yes, know, yes, the shame, the guilt. Just it's just you. Yeah, and yeah, how people are strangely attracted to that. That it's refreshing. It's how much more honest can you? Yes. Um, yes. I like this guy because before that there was a Doug that was a two-faced Doug, and right, and people can smell that, right? So. Just by being your friend, it's a duplicitous, you're sort of complicit in this, in the dysfunction of this friendship, not even maybe knowing, but it's all, it's all just so until, and you think it's devastating, you think it's the end of the world, until you start to come on the other side and you say, it feels real fresh. This feels fresh in a way that I haven't felt. My, did you feel that way? Amen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Feels, yeah. feels good to be released yes. of all the bullshit. Yeah, man. And then you then you're even comfortable in talking about your imperfections, your vulnerability, and it's no longer a, a deficit. No, uh, it's no, it's right. <laughs> and and um, okay, I can already tell this is going to be a two part interview. So sorry. Um, like I said, I tattoo it on my forehead. And what I yes. say to people today is I will tell you as much or as little as you'd like to know about any of it or me. I'm an open book. It couldn't be more open. I don't think yeah. you have time. I don't know that you even have the interest, really. And it's funny who doesn't have the interest. When I share my debacle, my fall from, um, you know, I they don't. Okay, sorry. People want to, you know, the universe. Yes. The universe wants to love us, and and we don't see that sometimes. And it's certainly when you're in this incredible crucible of of shame and guilt, and it's the end, and it's well, it's horrible. And, and yet when you can start to say, you know, Phoenix rise from the ashes, um, however you, what metaphors you want to put, people want to forget. Right. Amazingly, amazingly, and thankfully, and gratefully. So yeah, man, well, I totally get all that. And so hold on now. So we, we, we have reached really, we've reached about the end of our, our time for our podcast. Uh, if you're okay, Doug, I think what we want to do is maybe call this part one. Have our listeners tune, tune into part two. What you... Fine by me. Yes. So I think what we'll, yeah, let's call this part one. We'll, we'll let everybody go today. Tune back in again when we do part two. Uh, for the, anyone listening, if you'd like, in our show notes, there are lots of information about Doug, his history, uh, websites, and, and to check out. We will, we will return with part two on our next episode. So Doug, thank you very much for today. And we'll, we'll pick up again. Thank you, Brad. Okay. See you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for being with us today. If you're interested in more about well-designed lives, follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, see you next week.